the sacraments. So we are looking at the doctrine of the sacraments as the means of grace, what we might call sacramentology, uh, a study that I think is uh, sorely lacking, an understanding that's sorely lacking in many churches. Uh, these issues were actually what are some of the biggest um, divisive issues that have split denominations in uh, church history. They split uh, the Lutherans and the Reformed early on, the Reformed, the Anabaptists, the Zwinglians, um, many groups. This, these issues are quite in common, and we often don't study them very much. And um, this is probably, this, uh, these questions today were probably some of the most helpful things for me personally to have studied um, in the last while reading through this past week. And so, uh, quite a bit to get through. Um, we'll do questions 161 to 164. We might get through them all as a chunk. We'll see how quickly we go. And um, yeah, there might be questions and stuff. Uh, feel free to ask. And you know, this might be two parts. We'll see. Uh, so the first question, 161, we're asking this. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not by any power in themselves or any virtue derived from the piety or intention of him by whom they are administered, but only by the working of the Holy Ghost and the blessing of Christ by whom they are instituted. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us a way of salvation. You've revealed to us your gospel in different forms suited to our various capacities. And we ask that your spirit would help us understand uh, the truth of the signs you've given to us and that it would help us to receive them um, to be a greater blessing in our lives um, afterwards. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this question is particularly targeting what was the then prevalent Roman Catholic Church's view of how the sacraments worked. So the Roman Catholic Church at that time taught and still teaches that the sacraments, they impart grace by virtue of themselves. That is, doing the right itself has a particular power to infuse grace into people. And this comes from really, they have a different view of grace than we do. Uh, the Roman Catholics think of grace almost like an invisible substance, like an electric charge that in a sense physically passes from objects. And grace is like a substance that charges believers up, almost like, like a superhero kind of thing. And we don't believe that that's what grace is. We believe that grace is the favor and goodness of God shown to us in relationship. Grace is what we receive from God in relationship from him. It's not some invisible substance that's moving around. So they think that grace is infused into us through baptism, the Lord's Supper, and they actually have five other sacraments. And the Reformed said, no, they don't work by themselves. That's superstitious. That's giving to some physical thing the properties of God himself. And so they said, no, they don't work by a power in themselves. And the term they use is that um, the Roman Catholics say they work ex opera operato. That is, they work by virtue of themselves. And the second thing that they said here is, um, so they said, if anyone comes to receive the sacrament, as long as they are not willfully resisting the sacrament, they will receive grace. So whether someone's in sin, even whether someone's a believer or not, if they come and they're not actively resisting it, the grace will come into them. 
But the other part of the equation to make this grace flow between the channel, so the receiver has to be not actively resisting, but then the one administering the sacrament, namely the priest, who um, literally puts the bread on their tongue. And in the Roman Catholic theology, the lay people aren't even allowed to receive the wine. They only get to partake of the bread. So they're denied the cup to start with, and it's placed directly in their mouth. But they said in order for the grace to flow, the person giving the wafer has to be actively in their heart, intending to bestow the grace that comes through the sacrament as the church does. So they say, if the person giving it is intending to see grace imparted, and the person receiving is not actively resisting, the grace will flow. Let the grace flow. So the danger and the problem for the peoples is that you could never actually have assurance that you were receiving God's grace, because you don't know if the minister with the hundreds of people he spaced out for a second didn't actively intend when he gave it to you to impart grace. And the reformers said, all this is silly. All this is superstitious. That's not how grace works. So they said... They don't work by the power of themselves or the piety or intention of the one who administered them. Uh, which would also include the idea that if, say, a pastor was found out to be in sin or scandalized himself, that wouldn't invalidate any of the baptisms he performed, because it's not his power that's doing the marking. And they say the only thing that matters is that they work by the working of the Holy Ghost and the blessing of Christ by whom they are instituted. So they're saying these work because Christ instituted them, he gave us to them as tools for the Holy Spirit to use. Just like we've seen in the last few weeks that the Holy Spirit uses the word of God and the word of God only works in our hearts when the spirit is actually part of it. So these sacraments work because the Holy Spirit blows on them and the Holy Spirit chooses to work through them because these are Christ-appointed means of worship. Now, as such, they are, um, these are signs, we're going to look at this more, but they're signs of these spiritual realities, and are, they're fitting for use in worship. And we can think these are properly symbols, in that we can understand how water is a symbol of cleansing, um, bread and wine is a symbol of blood, which could be washing, forgiveness, but it's not up to us. We're not allowed to invent these sorts of rituals on our own. That's part of the basis of the second commandment, which is to say, you want to worship God, but you're not allowed to worship him in the way other gods are worshipped, by fashioning idols. And by implication, we see that we can't invent ourselves ways of worshipping God. And so, even though um, we might see a symbol in the world that we think, huh, this symbol could have even a biblical spiritual significance— we can't turn it into an act of worship. Um, this might help by way of example. So you could imagine that if you light a candle at your home, you can think of a lot of scriptural things that that means. Christ saying, I'm the light of the world. Um, a city, a lamp on a hill can't be hidden. Let your light shine before men. You might think of the fire of the Holy Spirit. And you might think, wow, there's all this symbolism in the fire and flame of a candle. We should use this in worship. That, you know, when, say, someone wants to make profession of faith, you give them something to light a candle. And when they light a candle, that's their act of worship, symbolizing that they are going to be the light of the world because Christ is the light of the world to them. And you might think, well, that makes sense. We could even spiritually justify it. But God has not told us to use that act, that symbolic act, in order to worship him as a spiritual reality. 
What God did give us is he gave us water and he gave us bread and wine as two sets of symbols, which he says we ought to use as worshipful acts. And so we need to be aware that we don't fall into our own ideas of creating visual symbols, because when we create our own visual symbols for use in worship, it, it is borderline, if not outright idolatry, to stray from what God has given us. Um, you may have not experienced some of this, but th these can actually come up relatively frequently in churches. I was reflecting just uh, one time after during a church service in my church for growing up, uh, it was kind of supposed to be a confession of sin thing, and they had a cross, a wood cross at the front, and you were supposed to write a sin or something on a piece of paper and go up and nail it to the cross. Basically, an act of confession using the symbol of the cross, right? You might think, oh, that makes sense in some ways, but as an act of worship, God hasn't given that to us as our means of confession. We don't confess our sins by nailing them to crosses, that's not a ritual act God's given us. We confess our sins in prayer. We confess our sins to one another with words, not with these visual symbolic acts. And so we need to be really careful that we use only the visual symbols that have been instituted by Christ. And so that's why in the Reformed tradition, we always, before we partake of any sacraments, we always speak what we've termed the words of institution. So that is, you know, when, the, when we're having the Lord's Supper, the pastor always starts off quoting from either one of the Gospels or 1 Corinthians 11 says, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And you think, why do we say that every time? We say that every time because this is the reminder to us that this is not some made up thing, but that Christ gave us this visual symbolic act as an act of worship. It secondly reminds us that these symbols that we might ordinarily eat, bread and wine you might have at a meal, these are being set apart now for a use in worship. Not every partaking of bread and wine is a worshipful act. So the words of institution, they remind us that this is Christ's appointment and that they are set apart from regular use. Uh, same, with the, um, same with baptism. They'll usually quote Matthew 28, that Christ told us to baptize in the triune name. Okay, so that's why the words of institution are important. And lastly, on this first question, uh, just an interesting illustration in the book of Acts, when just to remind us that the power is not in the sacrament itself, uh, there is a doctrine called baptismal regeneration, which Lutherans believe and some Anglicans believe, the Roman Catholics believe, that by getting baptized itself, you are regenerated in a sense. We can be, we're reminded in Acts 18 of Simon uh, the sorcerer, who we are told at one point he himself believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs that were done. So this guy, he sees what God is doing, he sees the power, he believes these miracles and gets baptized. But then later on, um, Peter says to him, I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. So he, he sees that even though Simon the sorcerer has been baptized, he does not have a new nature. He is still trapped in his sin. Um, he was baptized for the wrong reasons, uh, for reasons that were not based on faith in Christ. Um, any, any questions on question 161? Alrighty, 162. This is a very, very important question. It applies to both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the question is simply, what is a sacrament? And really, there's actually two questions in this answer. The questions would be, what is a sacrament and what are the 
purposes for which the sacraments are given or what are the uses of the sacrament, um, those are both embedded in here. And so we read that a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ and his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation, to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion one with another, and to distinguish them from those that are without. So we'll look at this definition and then these uses one by one. So first we consider what is a sacrament. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ and his church. So they're a holy ordinance. That is, these are acts that have been ordained and instituted by Jesus and set apart for use in worship. Okay, that's what we were just kind of looking at. We're reminded of Matthew 28, the institution of baptism. Uh, Matthew 26, one of the passages about the Lord's Supper, where we see its institution by Christ. And we practice these acts because Christ gave a command to follow after him in them. Okay, so sacraments are holy ordinances instituted by Christ. And there are five things that they're given to do. Five uses of the sacrament. And this is helpful to remember today because we're partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. So as you think of the Lord's Supper, think, these five things ought to be happening in my heart as I partake. So the first use of the sacraments is to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation, that is, Christ's mediation. So that is, the sacraments, they signify, seal, and exhibit the benefits of Christ's mediation, which are all the blessings of salvation. So that is, the sacraments are given to show us what are the rich blessings of salvation, the blessings of regeneration, um, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption, union with Christ, the sacraments are given to signify, seal, and exhibit these things. And that is, they signify them in that the sacraments are visible signs pointing to these invisible realities. They seal them in that they come with the stamp of God's approval. So these acts are seals in that they show forth, because they are instituted by God, that God approves of them, that God guarantees that the way of Christ is the way of salvation, that God is guaranteeing his promises will come to pass. And they exhibit them in that they publicly witness and proclaim of the saving mercies of God in the gospel. And so when we think of baptism, we're, we see that baptism, it signifies cleansing, it signifies regeneration, it signifies union with Christ, and baptism is a seal of all these gospel blessings that God will save those who trust in his name. And it exhibits to everyone who sees God's promise to save those who believe and follow him. The Lord's Supper, it signifies Christ's sin-forgiving work on the cross. It's a seal of God's willingness to forgive sins. And it publicly proclaims Christ's death until he comes again. Now it says, these are signs and seals for those in the covenant of grace. And if you think about it, as Christians, we see these things as real signs. We really believe that the Lord's Supper signifies Christ's broken body and shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. Think, if someone doesn't have faith, if someone doesn't believe Christian doctrine, they don't believe these are signs because they don't believe there's any invisible reality that these things are pointing to. 
So they're only actually signs to us who believe in those invisible realities they signify. And so they are signs and seals for those in the covenant of grace. And this language, I find, generally confuses people. The language of the covenant of grace, people, when they talk about the sacrifice, they're just talking about the covenant, the covenant, and they're not often clear in what they're talking about. When we're talking about the covenant of grace, we are talking about the church. We are talking about those within the church. And now, this is an essential distinction, okay? So when we are thinking of the members of the church, the members of the covenant of grace, we must think of this in two ways. Okay, this solves a lot of the debates about baptism between denominations, is that we recognize that the covenant of grace has an external administration, but also an internal substance. Okay, we need to distinguish between the external administration of the covenant and the internal substance of the covenant. Okay, the external administration of the covenant of grace is everything visible we see happen in the church. How God governs us by uh, elders and deacons, the preaching of the word, the gathering together for worship, prayer, teaching. All these things are how God administrates the covenant of grace, right? All these means of grace are administrations of God used to impart the substance the internal substance of the covenant of grace, which is true regeneration, faith, and repentance in the heart. So this is important because we can say that there are people who are part members of the covenant of grace who don't have its internal substance, but only partake in the external administration, right? Someone could be a baptized member of the church and in that sense, are a church member. They're a member of our visible community of faith, but they don't have true faith and repentance in their heart, which means they are not actually partaking of the things that this whole external administration is for. Similarly, someone in evangelism could have gotten saved in their home last week, but they have not yet joined a church or even been made aware of the church community. That's possible. So we could say there could be someone who has the internal substance, but is not yet a part of the external administration. These are two ways we can think of ones in the covenant of grace. And this is helpful when you recognize, especially we're considering in a week or two, specifically the question of why we baptize the children of believing parents. Part of the solution is the recognition that God places the children of believing parents in the external administration of the covenant of grace. That is, they grow up as a part of our church community. They grow up under the preaching of the word. They grow up to believe in Jesus. They grow up understanding Christian doctrine, believing in the invisible realities to which the sacraments point. And that's why it's appropriate that these realities can be signified to them even if they perhaps don't have the internal substance of the covenant of grace because they are a part of the external administration. Children are called in Ephesians 6 to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
Um, we are called to baptize people, then disciple them. Baptism is the initiation into the discipleship process in which children are called to be brought up. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of us in a few weeks. We are going to get to that, uh, those questions a little more. But this is important because we have to recognize that the members of the covenant of grace are not only truly saved people. It's all those that are a part of the church, even externally. And so this distinction is the same distinction between what we call the visible church and the invisible church. That not every member of the visible body of faith is a member of the invisible true body of faith. Does that make sense? Was I clear enough on that? Okay, I'm getting some nods. That, um, I'll be content with that. Okay, so they are signs and seals of invisible realities of the gospel itself to those who are in the covenant of grace. And now here's another key essential distinction when we're distinguishing between Reformed theology and Baptistic theology. So notice that our question said that they signify, seal, and exhibit the benefits of Christ's mediation. So the question here is, to what do these visible signs point, right? Signs are pointing to something they signify, they signify. What are these signs pointing to? So in Baptistic theology, which I grew up in, I grew up Baptist, I became a Presbyterian in 2017, 16, somewhere around there, um, after about studying baptism for about three years. But in Baptistic theology, these visible signs point towards invisible realities present within the recipient. Okay, so the signification of baptism, it points to, to the invisible realities in my own heart. It points to my cleansing, my regeneration, my faith. Okay? Um, that is, baptism signifies that the one baptized has been cleansed, forgiven, united with Christ. And baptism is then a seal on that person, sealing the, tr- the genuineness of their profession of faith. But in Reformed theology, we don't believe that this is the invisible reality that baptism is pointing towards. We believe that baptism, like the Lord's Supper, it points to the benefits of Christ's salvation, the work of Christ, and the gospel itself. That is, it signifies what Christ has done to make a way of salvation for sinners like you and me. And the seal is not on the person receiving it. The seal is on the message that's proclaimed in it. That is, in baptism, the seal is that The message is that there is cleansing available for all who repent and believe in Jesus. And as surely as the water cleanses the skin, so surely will Christ forgive all who believe in him. And so the seal is on the promise of the gospel, right? It's You imagine as if um, the gospel promise is a scroll that's rolled up to be handed to people. But this scroll doesn't just come without any authority. The promise of salvation comes with the seal of the king himself on it. It's notarized, if you you were, by God himself who says, no, this isn't a promise I will revoke. This promise of salvation is not something that might pass away. It's guaranteed. It is sealed. It's authentic. It's true and valid, and you can bet your life on it. That God will never cast out the one who comes to him in true faith and repentance. And this is, I think, also good news for us because this helps us remember that the sacraments are elements of worship for all of us. 
If baptism is only a sign of my faith, then all of us in church are observers of someone doing something that's a helpful act for them. But if we, we recognize that that symbol is not primarily pointing to their commitment to God, but God's commitment to us, then every baptism is just a powerful of a spiritual experience for us as it is for the one receiving it, because we are being reminded of the cleansing power of the gospel and seeing God's promise to forgive and wash us. It's an act of worship for us. And one verse I wanted to point out that's, that can help us in getting this distinction right is in Romans 4.11, referencing the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision and what even circumcision meant. And we're told about Abraham that he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. So note, it's important to note here that circumcision is not a seal of Abraham's faith, as if it says, I have believed and received salvation by faith through grace, or by grace through faith. The circumcision here, it says it's a seal and sign of the righteousness that came by faith as a way to remind all who believe that this is available for them also. So that is, the circumcision is saying, you too can receive the righteousness that comes by faith if you believe. Okay, so the pointing is not to the faith of the person. The pointing is to the righteousness of God that comes to all who might believe. So the first purpose of the sacraments is to point to the gospel. It's to point to Christ's finished work on our behalf and the promise of salvation that comes by grace through faith. But the second reason is that the sacraments are given to strengthen and increase their faith in all other graces. And you can understand how this works, that if the sacraments, every time they're being administered, are pointing us back to the gospel, we are always strengthened in our faith by gospel rem reminders. And these are not just audible ones, but they're visual gospel reminders, ones that interact with our senses, uh, wetness, bread, wine, things that really vividly show forth the gospel. And therefore, um, they help strengthen our faith in the gospel of Christ. I really like the Heidelberg Catechism's answers on um, the way in which these sacraments strengthen our faith. Uh, you can look at that on the screen. And so it asks, how does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits to you? And it happens in this way. Christ instituted this outward washing, and with it gave promises that as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and Holy Spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. I, just, I love this language, and I find it so helpful for myself when watching the sacraments administered, this um, as surely, so certainly pattern, that as surely as that person was washed with water and baptized in the triune name, so surely have I, as one of faith, been washed of my sins by the blood of Christ. As surely as I am eating this bread into myself, so certainly has Christ been received into my heart and I have his righteousness by faith. As surely as I drink this wine, so certainly has Christ's blood been applied to all my sins. 
I'm kind of getting, I'm jumping into that next one, but they ask the same thing. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to us that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and all his gifts? It's in this way. Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises first. As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his blood offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Secondly, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. These visible signs that we can't deny, that we don't need faith to see or understand, these visible signs help reinforce to us that the spiritual realities to which they point are just as real. Christ's blood forgiving me for my sins is just as real as that wine that I drink. Christ's body being given, his righteousness being imputed to me is just as real as the bread. And so I think it's the visceral nature of the sacraments that helps strengthen our faith because they remind us of the truth of the things which they signify. Um, any, any questions on that point? Okay, thirdly, so if the sacraments first, they reveal the gospel. Secondly, they reinforce our faith. Thirdly, they're given to oblige us to obedience. Uh, to oblige us to obedience, the sacraments help remind us of our call to be fully allegiant to God, to obey him in everything. And this is a way that Paul even uses these to call us to obedience. In Romans 6, he says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So with baptism, there just remembers that I've been united with Christ in his death, but I've also been united with him in his resurrection. Therefore, I ought to live the resurrection life. I ought to walk by the Spirit. I ought to walk in the new life, the cleansed life. I need to walk as the forgiven of God, the sanctified by God. And so the sacraments help remind us of our obligation to obey God, our obligation to live Christianly. And when we think of even the children of believers, when we are offering our children for baptism, we are actually placing obligations upon them. We are placing an obligation upon them to live for the Lord, to live as becomes members of the church and followers of Christ. And now some have trouble with this. I remember talking to some friends from Julie's old church about this, saying that is almost mean. If you're putting new obligations on your children to live Christianly, and then they don't live Christianly, they're going to be under a greater condemnation. So why would you, in a sense, vow your children to the Lord? Well, the reason is that um, this dedication to God is often part of the means by which God works true salvation in their hearts. We expect that as we raise our children in the faith, God will work in them true faith. Think even of the Old Testament, how God had no problem telling people to dedicate their firstborn children from the earliest age to the service of the temple. Remember how Hannah she dedicated Samuel before she knew the true state of his heart. 
but trusted that as he was raised to serve the Lord, he would indeed truly serve the Lord. And so as parents, you can call your children, whether or not you know the true state of their hearts, we call them to follow God. We teach them how to pray to God. We teach them not to lie because Jesus calls us not to lie. As Ephesians 6 says, parents are to raise their children in the discipline. You can even think the word discipleship there and the admonition of the Lord. That is, they need to be raised to live Christianly. And that is part of what the vow of of baptism means. It's almost as if, if you as parents are servants in the king's court, right? You're living in the castle with Christ our king, and you have children born to you. The children have not yet chosen for themselves to be servants of the king or to live outside the castle. But for now, you give them the servant's garb, and they are raised to serve the king alongside their parents to wait on his table. Perhaps one day they will cast off those servant's robes and run away, signifying that they never really wanted to serve the king. But we expect that as they see our example and serve alongside us, they grow up in the king's household and at some point come to love the king as we love the king. And they serve him alongside us. And so baptism is saying to that child, we are putting the servant's garb on you and we are going to dedicate you to the king's service. Okay, that's what that is. That's how baptism enjoins us to obedience. It actually, it's a naming ceremony. So when, when, when we have a baby and she takes the last name Davison, there's certain family expectations that we might teach, hey, this is how Davisons live. This is how Davisons interact. These are our family ways and patterns. When you baptize a child into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have God's name upon them. Christ's name, the name Christian. They might not have the internal substance of what it means to be a true Christian, but externally, they are to live Christianly, to live up to the family name and the family likeness. And in that way, baptism obliges us to obedience, um, even in the same way that it reinforces our faith and reveals the gospel. And the Lord's Supper does the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 10, 21, Paul says that you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You can't be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. So even here, there's an implicit call that if you are partaking of God's supper, you are having communion with God, you can't be living in communion with the sins of the world. There's an obligation placed upon you even in your partaking of communion to serve God and to have your highest allegiance, your total loyalty to him alone. And so that's why many in our tradition call the Lord's Supper a covenant renewal ceremony. It's as if a ceremony by which we renew our vows to the Lord, even as we're reminded of his commitment to us. Um, It's similar in many ways. And um, once you think about it, the connections are actually very significant. But similar to the way um, the intimacy of the marital bed works to renew marriage vows, that vow to that loving, exclusive loyalty to one another Nowhere is more evident and visceral than in the intimacy of the marriage bed, where you are in a sense saying, this is my exclusive allegiance. You are my exclusive love and devotion. No one else can be a part of this intimacy. And that's how the Lord's Supper works for us. It says, 
I am 100% committed to the Lord. He is my allegiance, my God, whom I will follow all the days of my life. I will not go after other gods. I will not go after the world. I live for God alone. Baptism, it renews our covenant allegiance and loyalty to God. Uh, Fourthly, the sacraments also, they testify and cherish our love and communion one with another. So there's a horizontal element to the sacraments as well, because they remind us of our oneness. So Ephesians 2 talks about our one baptism, and it uses this idea of oneness to call us to humble, loving, patient service one with another. And so baptism reminds us that we were all baptized, and therefore we are members one of another and ought to serve one another. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are one bread and one body. And because we're one body, we ought to work together to love one another, the eye, the hand, the foot, as a family, loving one another, as Mike was teaching last week, as brothers and sisters. And so the sacraments work actually to stir up our love for one another and remind us of how united we really are. And lastly, if the sacraments reveal the gospel, reinforce our faith, renew our obedience, and revive our love, lastly, they are given to distinguish them from those that are without. So the sacraments always function as ritual signs of separation. You can think of how circumcision functioned in the Old Testament to separate the people of God from the people of the world. They were outward signs that distinguished the believing community and really say um, it is within this circle that generally the grace and salvation of God are to be found. And even though people mention how women weren't circumcised, they were within that circle of the circumcised community through their connection to husbands and children. The whole community would be thinking circumcision is our sign. Even a woman should think this is our symbol. Circumcision is something we do. Our families, our sons, our husbands. It was still an inclusive sign of the covenant community. In the same way, baptism was given to mark off those who were going to follow Christ from the Jewish community. Baptism is the initiation rite into the community of faith, that circle out of which ordinarily there is no salvation. The Lord's Supper, similarly, is an act that only believers are allowed to participate in. That's why we warn people from the table to say, if you do not trust Christ, this is not for you. If you've not professed faith, if you're not a member of a church, this is a family meal for the family of God. In the earliest documents of church services we have from Justin Martyr, they had a separate communion service where they'd have the public worship with preaching and praying. Then they would kick all the unbelievers out and have a private Lord's Supper ceremony for the believers. And that's where people got all these ideas that like they're doing this weird cult-like stuff. Are they eating people in there? Because they would be saying they're eating Christ's body and blood. And so that eventually stopped and the separation became verbal. But interesting how intentional they were to say that this is a family meal. And so in this way, by these ritual acts, the members of the visible church are demarcated and we are reminded of our identity as the people of God. That's what this is saying. It's saying we are the ones that trust Christ. We are the ones that have put our hope in him for forgiveness of sins. We are the ones who seek out cleansing only in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so if I was to summarize this answer, my summary would be that the sacraments work to reveal the gospel, 
to reinforce our faith, to renew our obedience, to revive our love, and remind us of our identity. So even as we come to the Lord's Supper today, let's remember how it reveals the gospel to us. Let's trust that God will use it to strengthen our faith. Let it remind us of our pledge to live holy for the Lord. Let it remind us that we are one body that ought to love each other and remind us that we are the people of God. We are Christians. And all these things happen in these wonderful signs and symbols and seals that God's given for us. And now we're out of time. These last two questions are really, um, they've already been enveloped in what we've talked about. That the parts of the sacrament are two, an outward sensible sign used according to Christ's appointment, and the other an inward spiritual grace thereby signified, right? The visible sign points to an invisible reality signified. And how many sacraments has Christ instituted in his church under the New Testament? Christ has instituted in his church only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. The Episcopal Church follows with seven sacraments, um, including things like holy orders, um, um, confession of sins, marriage, all these sorts, extreme unction. And we say some of them might be things you find in Scripture, but they're not instituted by Christ as acts of grace and worship. So that's why the Protestant Church has limited the sacraments to two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Let's pray. If anyone has any questions, you can maybe ask me after for a while. Uh, but yeah, let's pray and thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us these signs, these seals that show forth Christ to us, that remind us that we are his, that call us to obedience. And we do ask we would use them properly, that we would come to them in faith, that we would not be superstitious ever, but really see you being kind to us and giving us such helpful signs. Help us even as we enjoy the Lord's Supper today to enjoy the Christ of the Supper, to remember in the bread that you have given us your righteousness and we feed on Christ by faith, to remind us in the wine that your blood was given for the forgiveness of sins and that each one of us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So strengthen our faith today, revive our love, renew our obedience and remind us of our identity. All for Jesus' sake and his glory, in whose name we pray, amen.